This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie, removed from frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting for the real thing to start. Hello and welcome to The Real Thing. Very nice to have you back. I'm your host, Joe Lawrence, reporting live from Svalbard at the top of the world in the intense cold and polar bear ridden countryside. But nonetheless, I will uh, I keep the podcast going no matter where I am. This podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club's program where we explore the themes and ideas in the films that are specifically curated by the Film Club's board every semester. And today we have a great film, as always, one from last semester, so from 2023, though. And with us today, we have expert on films, I believe, and the selector of the film that we're talking about today. Hello, Hanna. Hi. Nice to be with you virtually, even though you're all the way in Valba, which is impressive. Yeah, it's, uh, I keep, uh, I'm having like pinch me moments multiple times a day. It's kind of, I can't believe that I'm in, in the Arctic Circle, podcasting from the Arctic Circle. (laughs) The Norwegian dream. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool here. It's like, it's really very strange, I think. The, the vibe is, is weird and the countryside is just like shocking and really impressive and kind of scary but it's cool and everyone is super nice here so impressive and scary and nice that is kind of what i expected <laughs> well uh-huh yeah i'm kind of uh the threat of polar bears is kind of um on my mind a lot but uh, other than that it's gonna be a cool stay i think but yesterday we were talking about the 1985 classic criterion channel classic tampopo but before we get into that well, let's start with some recommendations as we always do so if honey you have any that you want to share with us then i am all ears i do i do of course um uh for those who don't know me i am a bagging film club alum uh, yes, but it, it will always be in my heart. So I was obviously there and watched the film recently. And uh, fittingly, all my recommendations this week are Japanese, of course. Not only because um, the movie we're talking about is Japanese, but because statistically, it's likely that something amazing will be Japanese. Uh, so it only makes sense. Um, but we watched Tokyo Story uh, by uh, Yoshiro Ozu. And that really made me want to talk to people uh, about another film he made, which is called Good Morning, which is about uh, two little boys who um, tell their parents they will keep a vow of silence until they buy them a television. Cool. Um, 
from 1959. It's really nice. It's really sweet, but it also tackles those um, typical Japanese themes of modernity and mm -hmm. American influence. So that is super nice. Um, also drive my car, uh, which we're showing at the library next week. That is, um, uh, based on the novel of Project Murakami. So that's out from 2021. So if you want something that's slightly newer than 1959, that is mm. a wonderful, one of my favorite new films. That's like, um, a jazz record you play at night. It's slow, but beautiful. Um, a very lovely watch for those students in the already. Wow, quite the quite the recommendation. That uh, that sounds great. I haven't seen it yet, but I I look forward to it for sure. I'm kind of curious uh, though. Are you a Haruki Murakami fan? Do you like his books? What's your opinion? You know, it's controversial these days because he's kind of being reconsidered now because. Um, for one thing, he very often centers uh, men in his mm -hmm. stories. And uh, the women in his stories are often quite fetishized, or there'll be some, you know, uh, uh, reflection on uh, female characters' breasts seemingly to appear out of nowhere. Yes. But my controversial answer is still yes i am kind of a fan um because he really brought kind of magical not just magical realism but the idea that there could be magical elements in writing to the mainstream and i think he has also made people read uh, japanese writers more so Definitely. i I would uh, still not uh, cast him aside completely. I do see those things, absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. But there is still something unique about him. I say read him and then also read all the amazing female writers like Yuko, Agawa, uh, Miyako yeah. Kawakami. Um, just the more the merrier, really. Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've very boringly only read uh, Norwegian Wood, but I I did find those bits kind of like stand out, maybe unnecessary, but I've been reading books by Ryu Murakami, who I don't think has any relation to Haruki, um, but I loved his books. His books are Piercing and Audition are the two that I read, which is the inspiration behind the cult classic film. But I like, I really like his books because I feel like he gives a proper, like, uh, I feel like sometimes Japan can be sold as kind of this uh, perfect utopian society where nothing is wrong. Um, when in fact, maybe it does have this sort of CD on the belly where there is a lot of uh, men acting particularly terribly. And Ryu Murakami isn't afraid to sort of highlight the, the, those themes in his books. Mm. And especially in audition. So the perverse story contrast. of her. Yeah. But I, I enjoyed his books at least more than the one Haruki Murakami book because I felt like it was, even though it's obviously like a fictional fantasyful story, it still gave a more of a real reflection of what I think Japan is actually like. Mm. But I think maybe that 
um, the interesting part of it is that Norwegian would kind of rocket it the same, but it doesn't necessarily represent his writing. It's the odd one mm. out in a way. But the aforementioned yeah. um, objectification still definitely exists in the weirder ones. So that that doesn't go away. Um, okay. But I would say Kafka on the Shore, probably my favorite. And then his short story collections are, for the movie fan, the perfect thing because they are super cinematic. You can read mm. a short story at a time. Um, and without women, the elephant vanishes. Um, those right. always going to put in some literature recommendations too. You can't ask anything else of the librarian. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, literature recommendations, that's what I was going to recommend today, actually, for my behalf. The only film recommendation that I have is that I watched Antiviral yesterday, which is uh, one of Brandon Cronenberg's first films. And it is centering around a company that sells diseases that celebrities have to the to the common to the common man. Um, and obviously, you can expect no less than a, of a Cronenberg that it's uh, extremely uncomfortable. Um, kind of uh, since it was one of his first films, it's quite low budget esque. And uh, it's kind of reflective of a Black Mirror episode almost. Um, but really great, really great lead. Um, I audibly said, ew, that's so gross, out mm -hmm. loud in, the, in my room on my own, uh, because it was gross. Um, but like a very on the nose uh, commentary on society's obsession with celebrities. But nonetheless, it was a pretty good, like standard good film. But I've enjoyed, I've seen Possessor by Brandon Cronenberg, and I also quite like that. So that was a fun concept, and I'm dying to see Infinity Pool. Ah, I'm surprised you haven't jumped on it yet, being horror fan. Yeah. I am a horror fan, and I'm also a Mia Goth super fan. Exactly. So, yeah, <laughs> so uh, it's crazy to me that I haven't seen it, but uh, it's, it's definitely uh, on my watch list. Uh, but for my book recommendation... It's also relating to an upcoming film, which I believe will be possible to see in Bergen in the coming months, is um, the Alistair Gray novel Poor Things, which is being adapted into a film by Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, I, without being too dramatic, I think if it keeps going well, this might be my favorite book that I've ever read. That's big. <laughs> yeah, it is big. Yeah. I. I just uh, I can't get enough of, of it, and I'm sad at the concept that I'm going to finish it. Um, so it's following this uh, this doctor in Scotland who befriends this super weird guy who's also a doctor at his uh, university, who has um, reanimated a woman's body after he found a woman who committed suicide. And it's like a little bit, at times it can be sort of a bit seedy and creepy because the kind of concept is this woman who they don't know the history of uh, was with child at the time that she committed suicide and he transplants the child's brain into the woman and then he raises her as like a 25-year-old child. And the whole book is about him teaching her how to experience life 
and she about her first loves and her first experiences with food and seeing the world. But the character's Bella Baxter, who will be played by Emma Stone in the film, is just such like an exciting and peppy and fun character. And it's like really interesting as she's sort of like coming into her own knowledge of like seeing the person who she's gonna be. And she's like breaking people, men's hearts left, right and center. And it's just, it's just a thrill to read. It's like really well written and it's making me even more excited for the film. So that's my recommendation is that poor things. That sounds amazing. And it also sounds like Latinos is the perfect director for it. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's some, some, uh, he's like telling a story of different animals that he's reanimated and just kind of trying out different combinations of animals and stuff. So I think, yeah, he's going to do a great job. And it's, uh, Willem Dafoe is, uh, playing the creepy doctor. Emma Stone, as I said, and uh, Rami Youssef, I believe is the name of the lead actor, and then also Mark Ruffalo is playing the uh, like debonair, fiendish man who steals Bella Baxter away. So I think it's great casting and I can't wait. So that's going to be good. I'm going to haunt the Bagging uh, Channel website for the spring time. Oh, yeah. Well, that was very, uh, the most literary recommendation that I think that we've ever done, but uh, great, all the same. But how about we just jump in, start talking about the main attraction of this episode, which is Tampopo. Let's do it. So this is a Japanese comedy film and genre defined as being a ramen western directed by uh, Juzo Itami in 1985. Uh, so quickly I'll just define what a ramen western is. It is basically a play on the concept of a spaghetti western, which was these bunch of films which were western inspired and styles that were produced in Europe and particularly were produced and directed by Italians or filmed in Italy. So for example, we have Sergio Leone, who was reckoned as a pioneer in this genre and made the Dollars trilogy, which was fistful of dollars for a few dollars more in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. So when that was taken by Juzo to adapt that into a Japanese film, obviously we got a Roman Western, which is very fun. So you chose this film for Birmingham Film Club's uh, program last semester so do you want to give it a little introduction and maybe talk on why you decided to choose this film i will um so as you said it's directed by yuzo atami um and it came out in uh, 1985 which was an amazing year for movies um but this movie is a hodgepodge of uh, so many genres that are um, really defined genres in themselves, but it takes them and makes it appropriately into a tasting menu uh, of them. Uh, we meet two truck drivers who stop uh, late at night at a uh, ramen joint, uh, Google and Gun, and uh, uh, they 
find the ramen so and so, but they're meeting with the owner, Tampubo, that inspires them to go on this odyssey quest of uh, learning the art of uh, noodle making. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is kind of the main story of it, even though that doesn't in any way explain how rich um, that story is. But it, it also is infused with all these vignettes centered around food. So um, the film is kind of never static. It, it opens with a fourth wall break where they talk about etiquette in the cinema, which is mm-hmm. absolutely classic. And I think we should have as a, as an opening vignette at BFK someday. I I, I would love that. Yep. Um, and um, other vignettes like that include a spaghetti eating course for Japanese women and a woman squeezing all the fruits in the store. Um, And then uh, my favorite and everybody's favorite, of course, uh, the erotic food scene, uh, which iconically includes the passing of um, an egg yolk that stays intact from mouth to mouth. So the Tampopo story, uh, the arts of ramen, is mirrored through all these smaller stories that are kind of comedy, also gangster uh, Yakuza yeah. stories that got him, got him in trouble later. I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, oh, yeah. And then just kind of art house in the sense that it's this explosion of, of uh, little treats that are somehow tied together. So I think I chose it because it's kind of impossible to walk away from this film feeling anything other than joy. And um, I've never met anyone that didn't enjoy this movie and I've never met anyone that didn't feel hungry. So it's just oh, yeah. a unique party. That's what it is. A little anecdote from when we showed it at BFK is that our uh, recurring, most 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 recurring guest of the podcast, uh, Bendik. Um, had to leave the the screening midway through because he was so hungry. Mm. He had to go get something to eat. I think um, before seeing it, I was warned that I should either not be hungry or have ramen, which is awful because we actually don't have decent ramen in Bergen, which I know there's one day going to be a mass movement to change. Um, Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it's... um, it has has a lot of wonderful things going for it, but it's also just one of those perfect BFK films because um, it's a cult classic and it yeah. can go under the radar sometimes. Yeah, for sure. It, the, just to touch on that a little bit, is that when I was reading about sort of the legacy and the reception of it, it's obviously, like you said, now we revere it as a, as a cult classic and it even has a... In the past, I think it was 2016, it got a 4K restoration through Criterion. Um, but initially, when it was uh, released in Japan, it wasn't all that well received. It was uh, considered a slop in the Japanese box office. But then uh, when it was released in the 
States, I think two years later, then it that's when it sort of came to commercial and critical success. Maybe it's because it does borrow quite heavily from Western film traditions. Mm. Interesting in terms of what you said about uh, noodle ramen. And what I find so amazing about that term is that the so-called spaghetti Western and Westerns, they borrowed so much from Japanese cinema, especially Sergio Leone. Mm. He copied um, Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo and mm. Seven Samurai um, to define the genre. So I feel like that ramen western is a bit of a reclamation of that but at the same mm. time it uses western elements so it just becomes a big kind of circle now you know yeah it's like a full circle moment except you don't know they don't remember where they started almost no yeah that's postmodernism for you <laughs> <laughs> um i had never even heard of this film before i saw it at bfk um but it was great it was such a it was a treat to watch honestly like i got like you said you you can only kind of smile and have a good time when you're watching it i think i also watched it yesterday and i was mentioning that i had uh, some notes that i made whilst i was watching it but i think one of my main notes is that it has all of the gravitas and all of the um kind of stress and drama of a western but with like zero stakes it's like nothing bad is going to happen if it doesn't work out but you feel like they build up the scene like of her cooking the broth for example as if it's like the most important thing on the planet and the he has this really great score accompanying the entire film that makes it feel like this huge monumentous scary moment but she's just cooking but cooking can feel like that sometimes this um there's a humorous element to that as well, right? Because yeah. ramen is everywhere in Japan. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're making this uh, great effort to, to teach her to make ramen, even though realistically you'd find it on the next corner too, is kind of amazing. And as you mm-hmm. say, making making a meal can um, be easy, but on the wrong day it can be really hard. And Tampoco is mm-hmm. a widow, you know, she is yeah. uh, making ends meet for her son. And um, that those are the kind of situations where actually making a meal can, can be the last straw, really. Yeah, like it almost is life and death in this situation. And if she doesn't pull through, then how is she going to be a success? Uh, but I just love Tampopo as a kind of, I guess she's sort of the protagonist, but I just think she's such a fantastic protagonist and such a like joy to watch her kind of excitement and pure joy of going through this whole experience, kind of claiming who she already was. And that's really just a testament to the actress, Nobuko Miyamoto. I think she plays it so well. You really, from the second that you meet her, you're like in love with her and want to see her succeed and do well. Yes, and um, everyone loves a good makeover story. 
even oh, though yeah. <laughs> they oh, keep yeah. it strictly to the ramen shop, no, uh, no salon uh, treatment as far as I can remember, but we love those stories, you know? Big time. That's my, like, that is one of my guilty pleasures, like uh, the show Queer Eye, for example. I'm, course, full, I'm, I'm like not paying attention all episode until they do like the hair reveal, the house reveal, then I'm like, okay, this is the best <laughs> thing ever. So it's like great to see that in a film. And I think towards the, maybe in the last 40 minutes of the film, when she has her new uh, outfit that they choose for, which is this uh, big chef hat and uh, uh, a gun who's sort of, the guy leading her through this story says, uh, you look like a French chef. I almost want to call you Jean. And like, mm. I just, yeah, and that's kind of like a mini makeover, I guess, but that's great. And I love their relationship that is sort of like almost played off in a romantic way, but it's never like a real plight or focus of the film that it's just kind of like, uh, almost like a strictly professional relationship. I think these physical elements are representations of the inner journey, which, you know, it's food that, um, that makes that come to fruition. It's the kind of social gloom uh, and the social divider, because you wouldn't put these characters together or you wouldn't picture them together yeah. in a lineup. But then they come together through this mission. But I thought um, something um, I'll never forget is uh, we did a volunteer screening of Temple Bowl uh, before um, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Vene Chambor and Kenneth Shovel, um Vene is still on the board, Kenneth was then. Uh, one of them said, you know, the film is amazing, but it's basically a long mansplain of making ramen. <laughs> and, oh, you I know, so. they're kind of, <laughs> kind of quite literally correct. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't think of it that way. Uh, it's a lot no. of fun, but I must credit them with that amazing analysis because oh, yeah, definitely. at some point, yeah, I think it's uh, it's like nuanced mansplaining. Absolutely. It's mansplaining <laughs> with heart, which maybe even isn't mansplaining at all. It's just explaining. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought uh, food is, it is the penultimate food movie. Even starts by saying what you're eating. Um, yeah. And then that kind of comes back and one of my big loves with this film is you know food as something erotic and even though mm -hmm. nothing happens um between um between the characters or at least not the main characters it still is kind of charged um and you know Chocolate and oysters are the meant to be the great aphrodisiacs. Mm -hmm. There's forbidden fruit. 
there's Stanley Tucci's Instagram where he's making the most amazing farfalle <laughs> in the most erotic uh -huh. way. But I feel like mm. not enough movies tap into this erotic uh, potential of food, but this movie really does. And you'll never forget um, the very creative ways of using food for that purpose in this. Um, there are some other examples, but the, it was done to perfection here. Absolutely. The scene of them, like you said, passing the egg yolk between their mouth. It's like, if so, if like, if you would describe that just with words, I feel like you would think that's gross or yeah. It's like, why would anyone do that? But kind of when you watch it in the scene, it is, it is like charged and it is kind of erotic in a way, which is strange when you actually think about it, but like in the moment of it, of it, you think like food is kind of sexy in a way. It makes you think about it in that perspective, which I don't necessarily think that a lot of people would do. I think it, uh, it definitely awakens that thought and that experience. And then you have, um, Mexican film, like water for chocolate, for example, that's based on a novel. In that one, there is a, um, uh, the protagonist finds a way to infuse the food she prepares with her emotions. And oh. it's a nice, nice, uh, little tie to that because even though the erotic, you know, smearing of various, uh, edible substances on bodies that may or may not happen in a book or if you haven't watched it you definitely should now hearing this um yeah. that um is you know one one type of love uh and then it shows other uh types of love um the housewife that gets out of bed on her deathbed to prepare a <laughs> last meal yeah. Um, or uh, mother breastfeeding. So it is the erotic aspect, but there's also just food and love and nurture, you know, food as a symbol of care. Yeah. I read Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zona, lead singer of Japanese Breakfast, who I am a huge fan of. Um, a couple, or at least the year that it came out. And I think that's what really started my thinking of food in in a different way, and especially then kind of spookily continued through watching this film many years later. Um, but she wrote in the context of her having like a difficult relationship with her mother that food was sort of like the great equalizer in their relationship, that there was always this level of judgment from her mother um, for various reasons. But when it came to eat, then then there's nothing there's no like aversion there it's just we both need to eat and we both have respect for each other eating and that's like i think that was kind of mind-changing for me in, in a really big way and through this film as well that i think you kind of forget in a way that food is ultimately what can connect every single person in the whole world like everyone eats everyone 
gets together and has lunch, for example, like you, you wouldn't think about that, say, if you're at work, you're all on your lunch break together, all connected through this moment that I think can be forgotten about. It's like something to really, it brings moments to appreciate and to share. And I think that's just a really special thought that this kind of sings through this whole film, is, uh, especially at the end when they uh, all take the last drink of the Roman together after Tampopo finally like perfects the mm-hmm. uh, the recipe. It's just like, yeah, that food allows these moments of connection and of perfection and stuff. I just think it's really special and lovely to see it like, outlined in a film like this. I think that's a really, really excellent point. And it doesn't stand alone either. Um, in Tokyo Story, it's a big um, thing when uh, it's about uh, parents who visit their children in Tokyo, but then they end up being neglected by all of them. Um, it's a film that really makes you want to call your parents. Um, but in that film, there's a moment where um, one of their daughter's husband says, I bought, brought bean cakes today. She says, oh, they don't need that. Rice cakes is enough for them. And it makes you really sad. You're like, you want, you want them to have the special <laughs> bean cakes. Uh, it, it definitely means something. It's also uh, in the Ghibli movies. It's a very yeah. big... Uh, big sure. thing uh all those amazing fried eggs and um those ramen bowls and also more sadly in grave of fireflies uh, which is set during second world war when the kids have to really fight for their rice yeah, yeah. well i was just exactly going to talk about the chipley films just briefly that just thinking about what we were just talking about that when if I really think about what those moments of the food kind of represent I can think in Ponyo for example uh, that time where they have that special meal is like kind of a calming moment after the whole world floods and in Howl's Moving Castle when they have breakfast together that's the first time that they all kind of begin this family that they have together and it's all set around a breakfast table so yeah just i think i'm now i'm just going to be thinking about every film that i've watched ever and if if there are these like special moments based around food and could they only be based around having a meal together Mm, there is something to it and maybe especially because it's so important in japanese cinema or it's something the characters use to connect and then you think of the American tradition of TV dinner and the contrast yeah. becomes pretty apparent. Yeah, just like uh, Matilda just came to mind, I guess. Mm. Is that the whole, uh, the kind of complete separation and ignorance of that family is completely exemplified in them sitting completely blind to each other, watching TV, eating their kind of like microwave dinner together. Definitely something to look out for, but in the case of mm. Popa, there's also a huge meal being consumed in the cinema. So I guess that that mm. that'll be allowed. Yeah, but I love that. Like, I love the beginning so much. I think it's 
just a, it's like a great little like jab to having people uh about cinema etiquette um and i also specifically remember someone was eating like chips during the tampopo screening and it was like driving me crazy they were sitting right at the back just rustling through their bag and i was like oh that's so annoying quite um quite important to people to have the isolating experience to be kind of alone with the film and yeah we do it would be really mm-hmm. amazing to show that scene because you need to be aware that you're around uh other people and um it's definitely a breach of the cinema contract i'm not saying don't mm-hmm. bring a snack but you know maybe um maybe <laughs> choose your snack wisely i'd say we don't show many yeah. movies with lots of explosions so you can't hide no. your snacking in them <laughs> that's very true my approach is whatever you brought you have to eat as much of it during a trailer period and then no more food when the film starts I think we have a similar strategy then. Yeah. You have to like pound through the popcorn and then the film starts and you put it out. Either that or create a very elaborate system where <laughs> everything is as accessible as possible. Now it sounds like we're going to kill someone who shows up with a bag of crisps, but uh, maybe, we won't take it that way. No. <laughs> no, no. Maybe next time, but not yet. Um, well, uh, just... Uh, very morbid uh, little transition there, but since you were talking about killing, I thought we could uh, briefly mention a kind of almost true crime element to the the history of this, this film's director. Briefly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Juzo Otomi, he made 11 films, I believe. He directed 11 films after he stopped being an actor, which I believe was when he turned 50. Um, so Nobuko Miyamoto, who I mentioned, is also the star of this film, and she's great, is his wife, and she was the star, or at least a main role, in all of his films. She was like, he had kind of a, a rolling cast of actors who he used in almost all of his films, like Christopher Nolan. But... Uh, I just wanted to point out that she, yeah, like she's brilliant in this film and then one of his most acclaimed films, uh, A Taxing Woman, which I think won six Japanese Academy Awards. She won Best Actress in that film. And that's uh, kind of like a neo-noir about a female detective going through, I think following some cases of murders through the like love hotels in Japan. Um, I saw some clips of it and it looks uh, pretty good. So I'll definitely be watching that. Um, so obviously, I think you can tell from this because even though it's uh, seriously sold at the root of the film, it's uh, it's pretty silly, I think, Tampa, but it's uh, kind of... I was thinking yesterday, it's almost... Some of the stuff that happens is almost reminiscent of, like, the airplane uh kind of the, those those three films uh like top secret and the other one um 
So he's like not afraid of satire. He's not afraid to make real punchy comedy or commentaries on things. But this is actually what ended up uh, getting him in a lot of trouble later in his life. Um, so the, I think Tampopo might have been one of his last films. And the film that he made after this was a uh, kind of a satirical comedy about the Yakuza, which was a very large gang movement in Japan through the latter half of the 20th century. And this uh, basically brought up a lot of uh, anger from the Yakuza. They said, hey, please stop making fun of us or we will kill you. To which he responded by making another Yakuza comedy film, which then unfortunately um, in 1997, uh, John was declared dead after he was found having fallen from a building which his office was at, with a suicide note saying he'd been falsely accused of having an affair and he did it to clear his name. It was like a big um, kind of celebrity scandal almost. He's like this huge director and his wife is a huge actress. So attached to this was a whole load of uh, like a media circus. However, everyone was kind of aware of this. Uh, so I think the gang was kind of a division of Yakuza group called Gotogumi. And then many years later, in 2008, a former member of this, uh, of this group said that we set it up to stage his murder as a suicide. We dragged him up to a rooftop, put a gun in his face. We gave him a choice, jump and you might live or stay and we'll blow your face off. He jumped, he didn't live. Absolutely horrible. I know. And he um, did kind of call his style even in tumbleball criticism through humor. Yeah. And it's just kind of sad to think that someone or the accuser specifically would take that humorous portrayal of them so very, very seriously. And uh -huh. um, even in Tampopo, there is a, some gangster plot that we haven't talked uh, that much about, but it's very mm -hmm. much there. Um, and the Yakuza are still still a huge taboo um, in Japan, but it definitely shows his boldness in expressing these things. Yeah, that just uh, him kind of after receiving that threat and still choosing to make this second film that's like uh, very clearly about this uh, kind of critique through humor. Yeah, he's incredibly bold and very, it's like very, it's respectable in a way almost that he's like obviously very defined in believing that obviously from such a corrupt establishment that he obviously believes shouldn't have such control over things like media or movies. In Japan, almost above the government. So I think it's it was kind of an incredible thing to do and very respectable. And then just incredibly sad that such a great man's life had to come to an end in such a horrible way. And who knows? Um, he probably would have continued making movies. So I yeah. suppose we should be very grateful that we have uh, the movies we have and that he uh, really made us you know, laugh and uh, 
really added something to cinema as well. And I think that um, even though he had that end, it is kind of comforting, especially the afterlife of Tampopo, which is, you know, being restored and re-released and really failed as the penultimate movie within what it's doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just fantastic film, fantastic guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess all I can say is thank you for putting it on the program. Because I don't think that I would have really come across it otherwise. My absolute 100% <laughs> in fact uh, a couple of days ago a friend of mine uh asked me what to watch because he was uh having a free evening and i was like you have to watch tampopo because you're gonna love it and then uh yep two hours later i get a message from him and he said what a fucking recommendation <laughs> so and the film torch passes on uh, yeah on and on <laughs> to give you I have to give you a props though because uh yeah it came from you and I'll I'll keep spreading the word you do that it's the best part of BSK it's our big public sharing forum of great cinema and that uh was one of the last films I put up but also mm. dare I say one of the best yeah you had some you definitely had some great ones in there but I think maybe Tampopo was my favorite, at least. That's great. Contrastingly, I have my first film in the program coming up, which is very exciting. It is. Which one is that? Uh, I am not Madame Bovary. Ooh. I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to that one, and I have not seen it, so that will be on my list. Great. My interested to see how the projection side of it will go um because it has a very peculiar aspect ratio it's a circle ah. um yeah so but very exciting i have two films and a call waves for people to watch them it's gonna be a great term all around so yeah definitely i hope everyone listening either are members or seeing likely yeah well, I think we're at the end of this episode. So thank you so much for being on. This has been a really great discussion. I very much enjoyed talking about this film with you. Me too. Yeah. And as Hanna said, if you are living in Bergen, willing and able, please consider being a volunteer at Bergen Film Club. And if not, just please come see one of our films. We would love to have you. But yeah, thank you again. Uh, and goodbye. <laughs> Bye. This has been a Birkin Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pierre Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilfreibern and Mamina Nasmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye.
Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.